many, many books on various historical, theological and philosophical subjects, including just from my library, ones on feminism, magic, Darwinism, the family and recently on resilience. She served on the faculty of Oak Hill College for 14 years, has been a writer for Latimer Trust for over a decade and is now a freelance theologian for the last two or three years, counting the Church of England Evangelical Council and our very own church society among her clients. Um, She was the Associate Minister at St Paul's Hadley Wood for about five years, um, having been ordained in 2016, and is now resident in Carlisle, having sensed a calling to cheaper house prices. (laughs) As one of her former students and one of her current readers, it's my pleasure and privilege to introduce her today. I can guarantee that her paper on Perseverance Through Discouragement, her title for this morning, like her recent work on resilience, will have been meticulously researched supremely through study, prayerful study of scripture, but also through consulting the best uh, Christian sources, both historical and current, and I suspect some secular academic studies in a range of fields as well. She's asked me to um, read from Ephesians chapter 6, as, um, as some background for her talk. So this is from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 20. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armour of God, so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you have done everything, to stand. Stand firm, then, with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. And pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. Pray also for me, that whenever I speak... Words may be given me, so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly, as I should. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Almighty God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would give Kirsty words of wise counsel and encouragement to share with us this morning, and that he would give us attentive minds and humble, receptive hearts to listen, digest, discern and apply such wisdom to our thinking and doing as we labour in the Lord's name. And in the Lord Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Amen. Kirsty. I thought you might be going to ask me about the first book I wrote. It was on kangaroos. <laughs> I was five years old, very limited print run. (laughs) Right, well, today I'm talking about perseverance through discouragement uh, because this is the context in which we do ministry. It's a difficult profession, and 
uh, not least because we work with people and people are difficult. Like care in any caring profession, it's high stress. And at the moment, for instance, we're hearing of the rising numbers of burnout cases in the NHS. Caring for people in any caring profession is going to be difficult because it's hard and because you care. People who care for people are more likely to care about their jobs. Because they're not just jobs, are they? They're people's lives. And ministry will be stressful just because you care. But more than that, we have to remember that we're in a spiritual battle because it's not just any caring profession. We don't just wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not just a struggle with annoying people who don't do what we want them to do. It's not just a matter of people who disagree with us or media that's against us uh, because we have an increasingly unusual worldview. It's a battle against the devil who will use all the tools he has available. Uh, He will use people's indifference and the spiritual sluggishness that's within the church. He will use the evil impulses people have to gossip and slander and maliciousness. He will use the rise of alternative views of personhood and sexuality and the temptation to indulge the sinful nature that's there in every human being. He will use the setting up of authorities against God and against his kingdom. So we must engage in spiritual battle. As we do so, we must take advantage of the best wisdom of the world, the wisdom we learn simply from being in the world, uh, from observing it, observing its rhythms and patterns and our rhythms and patterns and how we work. And learning from this is part of learning how to be effective people in the world. We learn from scripture how to oppose the enemy, how to carry out effective biblical ministry, and how to persevere in the ongoing struggle even when circumstances are discouraging. And we also learn from the experience of people who study people, so the best of secular wisdom, who study ordinary occurrences like coping with stress and burnout and developing resilience. So as creatures of this world, we do our best to grow in wisdom and godliness, so understand how best to live. Now, this is ethics. Um, This is what I taught on for years. It's about being a whole person in the world as a Christian and growing to be the most Christ-like we can because that is being the most effective person in the world. So what I want to present to you is a picture of the person who is able to persevere through discouragement from a biblical perspective but also from a worldly perspective because what psychologists do is study how people work most effectively. Fortunately, in this case at least, the two don't conflict. Um, Actually, it's more than just fortunate, it's more than just good luck. It's precisely what we would expect in a world created by God according to what is good. God has created us as beings who are meant to live in this world. He created the world for us to live in. It's a broken world. But it's still a good creation with many good things in it. And one of those things is our created personality. 
uh, our own psychology and our own human characteristics. So it shouldn't be at all surprising that the best of psychology overlaps and meshes with what the Bible tells us about being an effective person in the world. The world will interpret the conclusions differently. We know that. Uh, they will put it, uh, the world will put the conclusions in a different setting. But people who spend their lives observing how people function, i.e. psychologists, secular or not, should come up with data that simply states what we are like. And we can put that in its proper context. Uh, we are like this because God made us like this. And he put us in a world that he created for us to live in. So I'm taking conclusions from what psychology says about persevering through discouragement. Um, a few years ago at Jake, I presented this in uh, the work I'd done on, on resilience. I'm doing a, a different thing today. I want to give you a framework for how, how you might take that uh, information and actually put it into practice in your daily life, in your weekly life, in your routines. So I see this as how we battle the devil because he wants us to fail in ministry. So what are the, the daily practical ways that will help us develop perseverance even in the face of discouragement? Now, we just read that passage from Ephesians that starts off saying, be strong. And I see this is all part of being strong. This is all part of putting that command into practice. And you do it with the armour that Ephesians gives you uh, so that we will stand firm. And, of course, the armour um, in that very visual way of, of explaining it, but what is the armour? It's righteousness, peace with God, Faith, salvation, the word of God, these are all the things we learn from his word. And these things enable you to build the personal resilience to stand firm. So these are the characteristics that come out of secular research. Um, and as I said, it's not surprising that it overlaps a lot with what the Bible says, but of course we put it in a biblical framework and the first is, cheer up. Now, that on its own is terrible advice. <laughs> I mean, even though it is what um, is it Peter and John said, um, no, cheer up, on your feet, um, to the uh, man who'd just been healed. Um, yeah, it's, it's not just, uh, uh, you know, a slogan. Uh, in psychological terms, what we're talking about is having low neuroticism and high extroversion. Um, I don't know if you know the pers personality factors that psychology talks about are the big five. Uh, one of them is extroversion, uh, was it um, conscientiousness, agreeable, agreeableness, openness, um, neuroticism. Um, neuroticism is the only one in which a high score is, is bad. You don't want to be highly neurotic. That means you don't want to be the sort of person who expects the world to be against you, expects things to turn out badly. Uh, because we know that, uh, well, yes, there are people in the world who are against us, but God is for us. Um, you need high extroversion, which is not just about liking people and being an outgoing personality. That's, of course, uh, is often part of extroversion, 
Um, extroversion is also that you gain energy from the people around you. So being an introvert doesn't mean that you don't like people. It just means that you probably find them more tiring. Um, you, but part of being an extrovert is also that extroverted people tend to have very positive emotions. They tend to be just naturally more cheerful, uh, uh, naturally happier. And that is one of the things that has been identified in the psychological literature as making you more likely to be resilient in the face of stress. So if you're an already an extrovert, uh, well, good for you. <laughs> but don't just rely on your natural temperament. Um, because you want to grow in love for people, interest in them, and concern for them. So you don't... If you are an extrovert, you will naturally feel like you want to be around people, but it doesn't necessarily translate into care for people. So uh, you are still working on your godliness to be interested in people and uh, not just rely on what makes you feel good, but... How well are you getting to know the person? If you're not naturally an extrovert, you can still do the things that extroverts do. You can still take uh, an interest in people, and that is how you get to enjoy people, by getting to know them, getting to love them and caring for them. But if you are an introvert, make sure you program downtime as well, because you will need that time to recover your energy. That's tough to do, particularly if you're working for a natural extrovert or if you have natural extroverts on your team because they may not understand the time you need to step down and recover. But be realistic. You want to be in ministry for the long term. If you know you need time on your own to recover, then go and do it and insist on it. This is a mistake I've often made as a natural introvert, wanting to keep up with other people. I haven't insisted on the downtime I needed and I've burned out three times. It's not fun. So don't do that. But what do you do about the fact that extroverts naturally seem to have more positive emotions? What if you're just the sort of person who doesn't feel cheerful a lot of the time, who just has that tendency to be a bit more negative? Well, you can work on changing that too. It is possible. And you want to do that because positive emotions are one of the most frequently mentioned things in developing resilience. And it's, it's all the characteristics which might be roughly grouped together as positive outlook. So things like being proactive, taking initiative... Uh, the positive expectation that you're going to have an impact on whatever happens, not being passive, not assuming that things are going to overwhelm you. And it also includes these emotions of being hopeful, being confident, um, yeah, not being consumed by fear. Uh, so one uh, quotation I have from uh, a paper on resilience is that it's associated with inner strength, competence, optimism, flexibility, the ability to cope, um, morale, purpose in life, a sense of coherence, all these uh, positive things. So you need positive emotions if you're going to cope with stress. 
they are what enable you to have positive thinking, flexible thinking, problem-solving skills, and to build the psychological resources that you need. But how do you get to have positive emotions? We tend to have um, a very passive opinion of emotions in our Western post-Enlightenment world. We tend to think that emotions are things that you can't control, that you can control uh, to some extent what you believe. You can be taught good beliefs and you can have good knowledge. You can control to some extent what you do, what your actions are. But things like emotions, the, the general view has been for a long time, they're not something that you really control. You know, you, you work on what you can control and you hope the emotions will follow along. Now, this is both uh, an Enlightenment view and reaction to that, a romantic view, but they both have that same view of emotions, that emotion is something that just overcomes you. It's not subject to rationality. And either you're a very Enlightenment, rationalistic person and you say, therefore, emotions are bad, don't let them overwhelm you. Um, so even if you're feeling terrible... You just decide what's right to do and you go and do it. Or you're a romantic person and you say, well, no, you should be led by your emotions. Uh, believe in yourself. Trust your feelings, Luke. Just go, go with what your heart tells you. And so, because emotions are good and you should follow where your emotions go. But both of them rely on this idea that your emotions are essentially not the same as rationality. That's actually um, not what the Bible says, and interestingly, it's not what psychology says either. It was what psychology says in the 19th century and a good part of the 20th century until a lot more work was done on cognition and how the brain actually works. Actually, our emotions are a cognitive exercise. They are very much driven by what you think and what you believe. And yes, you can be born with a tendency to certain emotions and a tendency to have certain thoughts, but you can change that. The, the deeper the emotion goes, the longer it takes to change, but it can be changed. Well, so how do you get to have positive emotions? You practice changing your thoughts, and that is something which I think we don't do enough of. We can assent to something, say, yes, I believe it, yes, I know that now, but it has to be very firmly embedded in your psyche if it's going to go deep enough to change your emotions. So we can change our emotions by changing our thoughts and make sure those thoughts are what we truly believe. So think about hope, for instance. Now, hope is an attitude based on knowledge, but it's also an emotion that is based on that knowledge. And it's based on knowledge that is certain. The future of heaven is certain because it's been promised by God. God keeps his promises and he does not change. So we can have real hope, which is very similar to uh, the, the secular idea of optimism. It's looking forward to the future, knowing that it's going to be good. The optimism that all the resilience research talks about is having a generally positive view in life, um, but it's not necessarily based on uh, realism. But we as Christians have realistic hope because we know the future is certain. 
Well, how do you create that positive forward-looking attitude and the emotions that go with it? How do you not just believe that things are going to be good, but actually change your emotions so that you feel things are going to be good? You have to keep on reminding yourself for the reasons you have hope. It's something that has to be a matter of practice and habit. So consciously think of the good things that you look forward to. Uh, Richard Baxter actually said to every Christian should spend half an hour every day thinking about heaven. That's a long time. That's a lot of time to devote to it. But that's how important he thought it was to actually develop that deep-seated feeling and attitude of hope within you. So think about it. Even when it's the most difficult time in your ministry, think about how wonderful it will be in heaven to greet the Christians who are there because they benefited from your ministry. And there will be people there that you had no idea that you affected, that you may never have met because they heard about something you said to a different person. So think about that. Think about how great that is going to be to hear, how grateful you will be. And you know that that will be true because God's word always accomplishes his purposes. So imagine yourself, picture yourself greeting them, hearing their stories about how your ministry changed them. And this is how you create emotion, not just an ephemeral, cheery feeling that comes and goes, but a deep-seated default emotion in yourself. That's an attitude as well as a feeling. You do it by changing your thought life. So you change what thoughts occupy the majority of your time and attention. Um, Another positive and biblical emotion to have is joy. And that's something that I'd like to hear taught about much more because it's easy to dismiss an emotion like joy uh, because we're nervous of Christians who just... Uh, seem to be over the top and always uh, run by their emotional state. No, that's having a romantic view of the emotions. We want to have a biblical view of of the emotions and the biblical view commands joy. How do you feel joy when there is no reason to feel positive? Well, that's exactly when the Bible tells you to feel joy when you're being persecuted, when you're facing troubles of all sorts of, of all kinds. And the answer is how, how to do it is because there is always reason to be positive, precisely because of hope, because no matter how bad circumstances are now, the future hope still doesn't change. And that puts all our suffering into perspective, and that's what the uh, first part of 1 Peter is, is talking about. So make yourself think of suffering that way. So you can do it in in writing, spend time writing down your lament and then the reasons that you have to rejoice nonetheless. Writing is very effective for um, getting these things into your brain, into that deep cognitive core, the, the core beliefs that, you know, is what cognitive therapy is trying to address. And it's worth doing that even in the deepest darkness, especially in the deepest darkness. Now, you might not feel better after doing it once, um, but that's not reason to, do, to give up because 
as I said, the, the deeper the emotion is, the longer it's going to take time to change. It's the ongoing practice that will train you in joyfulness. And this is training you in resilience. It's training you in perseverance. And notice your emotions as you go through the day. So are you starting to feel down? Well, that might be uh, a clue that you've started thinking something that's either not true or it's not what's most important. So deliberately notice what your thoughts are doing and change them to focus on what is important. Learn how to discipline your thoughts so that you get, can get them to turn from the negative to the positive. Uh, so, for instance, deliberately stop your thinking about how much this person hates you or how awful that encounter was or how awful this newspaper article is. Stop thinking about that and deliberately think about God's goodness, his generosity, his mercy, his unstoppable plans. If you're a person who wakes up feeling negative, uh, it's probably you've got something in your head that you are feeling negative about. So just decide, no, I'm not going to think about that right now. Before I get up, I'm going to think about God's amazing goodness and just spend 30 seconds thinking about God's goodness. Your feelings are so closely tied to your doctrine and the more you repeat good doctrine to yourself, the deeper it sinks in so that your whole person is changed to be oriented towards God. Um, just reading good books, just preparing good sermons is not necessarily enough. Of course, you need to do that, but you need to make sure that the good truth that you are dealing with cognitively actually does sink in deeper into your persona. So it's, it's a practice of repeating it to yourself, changing the focus of your thoughts, making it a daily reality. And it works. It does work. This is how you change what your default emotions are. So you won't never feel a negative emotion, but you can change your basic attitude uh, towards life, towards the day. And that is what builds resilience. Okay, the second one, have confidence. Um, this is what in the, the psychological literature is called self-efficacy. It's a belief in your abilities to manage. Um, and it is also the opposite of being neurotic, which um, will involve seeing the world as always threatening and bad. Now, it's interesting that research done on teachers has shown that the environment in which they're teaching and their actual skill at teaching, their actual ability, is not what determines their success. Because those two truths are filtered through their beliefs about whether they are able to be successful. So motivation, emotion and actions are based more on what you believe about yourself than on what is objectively true. Because your beliefs about yourself determine what you do with your knowledge and your skills and how you tackle the problems in your environment. 
If you have a positive attitude about what you can accomplish, you see difficulties as challenges, as a chance to step up and, and tackle something really interesting, not a threat that is uh, something that's overwhelming that you have to cower behind. So if you see it as a challenge, you put effort into resolving problems rather than just giving up. Now, I used to say um, that we should reject this concept of self-efficacy uh, in favour of the, the term I coined, God-efficacy, um, because actually God's sovereignty is a better basis for optimism than belief in yourself, because after all, we are all fallen and limited human beings. Um, belief in yourself can be uh, quite counterfactual. But I'm rethinking that, because... Having God at our backs actually does give us a sensible basis on which to think through self-efficacy because we can be strong in God's strength. Now, I know that's a phrase that gets uh, thrown around a, a lot. I don't do it in my own strength. I do it in God's strength. Well, what does that actually mean? Um, the fact is you're still doing it in your own strength, but it's because you are relying on God to carry forward his plans to enable you to do what you need to do even if it's not successful in the terms that you had originally planned, you know it's going to be successful somehow, precisely because God's word does what he wants it to accomplish. And precisely because we know God cares for us, we can have more strength that we, than we would have if we didn't believe that. And this takes effect through things like our belief that changes our attitudes which objectively changes what you are capable of doing because you will step up and tackle things and that in itself gives you more skills. And as it is changing your emotions to be more positive, that in itself helps you tackle problems. So it's not just an empty belief in yourself. Your beliefs about God and what he can do through you can objectively change you so that you can accomplish more. So trust God and change your emotions so that's actually true, so you actually are trusting God. So it's not just a mantra or, or something like that. It is something you are actually doing. You can persevere in ministry. The people who oppose you, in the end, don't matter. God has his plans and his word will accomplish its purpose. God is infinitely good. So put on his armour, which is objectively changing your thoughts so that you are relying upon the efficacy of God's word to accomplish its purpose. Daily, let those ideas clothe your mind and saturate your mind. I'm using all sorts of metaphors here, but, but what it actually comes down to is this daily practice of reminding yourself what is true and getting into the habit of thinking about what is true. But that idea of putting on the armour, that's a great metaphor. So use it. Picture yourself being clothed in this armour that protects you, that is Christ's righteousness, that is your um, imputed righteousness, that is God's word 
that is um, your salvation. These are the things which do protect you. So picture it like that. That's a great image to have in your mind as you go into a difficult situation. K3, telling yourself stories. Because one of the things that seems to be um, characteristic of naturally resilient people is the way they have a narrative in their mind about what difficulties are. So how they will relate the story of what happened to a third person, which means that's how they're relating it to themselves. So this is all part of the kind of cognitive flexibility which is spoken of in the literature as being a big part of resilience, being able to change your perception of stressful times, telling it not as a story of, oh, that was awful, wasn't that terrible, um, but telling it as a story of, gosh, this difficulty thing came, came upon me, but this is how I grew as a result. This is the good that came out of it. It's something that it's hard to do at the time of difficulty, so practice doing it in hindsight, in the times that you have been through difficulty and have seen yourself coming through it, or you've seen some good coming out of someone else's difficulty. It's being able to find meaning and good outcomes and opportunity for growth, and it's all tied up with your core beliefs about yourself and your role in the world. If you have uh, low harm avoidance and persistence, that is, you tackle problems rather than avoid them, that's a key part of resilience. And again, this is ethics. It's all about ethics, how to live your life as a Christian in your thoughts, in your emotions and in your actions, being transformed into the image of Christ. So when you think back over the day, every evening, don't just think about what happened. Think about how you put that in the narrative of God's plans in the world and what he is doing. Uh, Think about it in terms of the overall narrative of scripture, of Christ preparing a church for himself, preparing a bride for himself. How was each event or each conversation or each setback, each frustration, how was that part of this overall narrative? Paul does it all the time. He sees the events of his life and of his ministry as part of the overall narrative of what God is doing in the world. So everything you do, every part of your ministry has meaning. Every bit of opposition that you have in deanery, synod or parish council or wherever it is, it all has meaning even if it seems to you trivial or oppressive or harmful. It is still all part of this narrative of Christ preparing a church for himself. Every negative remark, it's all part of God's plans to move his church forward to the day of Christ Jesus. It's toughening you up. It is uh, every negative thing that happens is developing resilience in you, building your faith as in the refiner's fire. And after all, God thinks that your faith is one of the most important things about you. He will do anything to strengthen your faith, even send you terrible difficulties. After all, he sent his own son to die. He will send you through difficult times precisely because that builds your faith. So rejoice in that. It was a horrible time, but my faith has been strengthened, and that is the best thing that can happen. 
So it is something you have to think consciously every day, or you may well fall into despair because you will... What the devil is telling us, what our sinful nature is telling us, is that this is an example of failure. This is an example of God not working in me. It isn't. It is precisely an example of God sending you difficulties to strengthen your faith. So experience life as participating in Christ's suffering, which is a blessing that you can rejoice in. And change your attitude so that's actually true of you, so that you actually are rejoicing in it, not just desperately trying to um, believe this, even though you don't really know. The, the things that I've been talking about, the daily repetition, the writing it down, that sort of thing is how you change it so you really do believe it. Uh, now, a couple of other things that you, you should be doing anyway, um, but actually uh, are very good in developing resilience, are altruism and forgiveness. Altruism is... is a surprising thing that you find secular psychologists talking about as this is what counsellors should be telling their clients to be doing. This is what um, resilience programs in school should be teaching children, teaching them altruism, teaching them to be involved in charity, to go and do volunteer work at uh, you know, care homes or uh, raise money for a cause or something like that because altruistic behaviour is part of building a sense of meaning and purpose in life, which is part of developing the personality that can cope with setbacks because you still believe that there's a greater purpose. Now, again, if you're completely secular, you're doing this actually um, against a secular worldview, which sees the world as uh, accidental rather than created. If you're doing it as a Christian, you're doing it entirely in harmony with your worldview because, you know, the world does have purpose. It was made for a purpose, and it is here for a reason. So altruism, serving other people, contributes to resilience, and it should be natural to us because, after all, we serve the servant king. How altruistic are you? It's worth just giving yourself a bit of an audit at some stage, because it is easy to be overwhelmed by the things you have to do. It's easy to see your programs as more important than the people, as getting the paperwork done, um, ready for the outlines, as more important than talking to this person who annoyingly rang you up just then. There's a bureaucrat lurking in the best of us. We like to see our systems put in place and the paperwork done properly. So it is worth just checking yourself now and then and thinking, does this person need my help right now? Because that actually is more important than the paperwork. That's a good enough reason to be late for your meeting or whatever it is. Can you delegate some of the tasks to someone else? Can you get the non-people activities off your desk? Not your sermons, that is a people activity because you are teaching people. But can you actually be able to help people when they need help? Are you generous with your money? Do you talk to someone about your own giving so that you don't give way to greed? 
because there will always be pressures on your, on your money and ministry salaries are not huge, that's no excuse to be greedy. Are you working out a consistent percentage of income that you give away? So it's just a little reminder. You are going into ministry to be a servant, so don't let ministry stop you from being a servant. And it's all part of your overall perspective. You are helping people. That's why you're here. Uh, forgiveness is another one that we know it's, it's central to Christianity. It's, know that it's what we should do all the time, and it is also a characteristic that psychological research says uh, is an attitude and an activity that promote resilience. So we know that we must be people of forgiveness because God has forgiven us so much and likewise we are to forgive others. And it's a part of the Lord's Prayer that we pray at least every week and if we're being really good Anglicans and saying morning and evening prayer, we'll be doing it twice a day. Um, And we're doing that, thinking about it, actually praying it, not just going through it by rote. We must forgive those who sin against us. Forgiveness makes your community work. It lets sinful people let go of bitterness. If you're modelling forgiving and teaching forgiveness and helping other people do it, it gets rid of that poison of bitterness which destroys communities. It derives spirals of anger. Forgiveness creates social harmony and it restores relationships, but it's hard. It's hard to do personally, and no matter how much you've taught it, when it comes to be a case of you having to forgive someone, it is hard to do. You will have to work on it because people will be bad to you. People in your church will betray you and break break their promises. People above you whom you trust will let you down. So... Practice being forgiving. It it helps to think of God looking at what has happened. He knows everything that happens. He knows um, who actually has sinned, who actually has done the harm. He knows and he will judge. So you can trust him and so uh, let that drive your own forgiveness. That's... That knowledge of what God knows and what he is doing is crucial to being able to forgive. And I find every time uh, if something comes up, forgiveness is never my first thought. It's usually self-righteousness and revenge is my first thought, even if if it's a trivial thing. Um, You know, Amazon should have uh, given me that refund and they didn't or whatever it was. It's hard to forgive and it's it's not natural to us. So that's why you have to be aware of what you're doing and remember how to forgive. Uh, Have friends, yes. So because uh, so far we've been talking about a lot of internal characteristics Um, about the things you need to work on in yourself, which is, of course, how the New Testament largely talks about ethics. Um, It is virtue ethics, basically. It's what sort of person you should be uh, in imitating Christ. But there's also something frequently mentioned in the resilience literature, which is, again, very much a, a Christian thing, and that is strong relationships, having a supportive social network. 
that is also very important to enabling you to persevere through difficult times, knowing that there are people at your back, knowing that there are people who will support you and, and having that encouragement from people who support you. Christians build communities. It's what we've always done. Uh, we are saved into a body. Um, and as much as that might go against our individualistic uh, worldviews, being modern people that we are, we know that we are corporate. We're not just individuals. Our, our central characteristic imitating Christ is to be other person-centeredness. It's, it's central to the Trinity. It's central to the God we worship. We are called to love other people. Um, we are called to hospitality, to being open to people, to welcoming them in. So, so make sure that you are part of a community and you're building community. Um, of course, it can be hard as a leader to have close friendships in your congregation, particularly if uh, you're in your curacy and you know you're going to be leaving in a few years. Um, but one book on friendship uh, I read says that you should, should always be grieving when you leave a community because that's how much work you put into building friendships um, and looking forward to the friendships you will build in the next community. Uh, make sure you cultivate strong relationships among the friends and mentors you have outside your congregation. Don't let them lapse through being too busy. I remember Philip Jensen uh, saying to me once, uh, I mean, he was one of the busiest people I've ever met. Um, he said, John Chapman would just ring him up every now and then and tell him a joke. That was all. <laughs> just ring up, tell the joke, bye. <laughs> I mean, that's, yeah, it doesn't have to take a long time, but that for him was so hugely encouraging that that would just happen now and then. So, yeah, don't be the Lone Ranger. When you are the incumbent, build a team around you uh, for, your, for your ministry. Community will always matter to you and always be important. Uh, yeah, I'm getting on to being aware in a minute, but I'm just going to say... This is the persevering life. Life is never going to be trouble-free, and especially in ministry, it's never going to be trouble-free. Rejoice in that. That's great. That's Christ preparing you to be the person he wants you to be. Both psychology and the Bible say that about difficulties. Um, hardship will build your character. Uh, so the psychological literature talks about stress inoculation, approaching stress with the right attitude and it will be positive for you, not negative, even to the point where the person who has never faced difficulty in their life can often objectively score lower in mental health than the person who has faced difficulty and come through it. What the Bible tells us is the reason for that is that God works good in all things for those who love him. I mean, and it spills over. It's, it's part of an, our created nature. That's why it can be observed in any human being. But especially we know that God is working good in us in every difficulty. What you need for this growth to be a positive experience for you is to approach stress in the right frame of mind. Approach it with this positive narrative 
that God is building your faith and thank him for that. Giving thanks to God uh, when you're facing difficulty will not be your first instinct. Your first instinct will be God take it away. But if you stop and say, no, God, thank you for this because I know you're building something positive out of this. I don't know what it is yet and actually I wish you weren't doing it, but I know you are doing something good in this. So rejoice that God will take this terrible situation and bring good out of it uh, for you personally and for the church. You don't need to be able to see it to know that it's there. So thank God for his wisdom in being greater and seeing more than you can. Find the reasons to rejoice, and you can always rejoice. And the Bible can command us to rejoice always, precisely because there is all this reason to rejoice. So working on your godliness is precisely how you build perseverance. That's precisely how you persevere through difficult times. So take heart. These... um, Things that you believe are not just abstract beliefs out there that you happen to know are true. The things that you do as a Christian, reading your Bible, um, praying, spending time with God, they're not just things that you have to do because they're the things that Christians do. Uh, We're not commanded to do them because we have to earn God's favour. Remember, you do live a life of grace. And when it gets busy and difficult, it's hard to remember that you are living under grace. Um, These are the things that make us like Christ, which make us the humans we were meant to be, living in the world we are meant to be in. So create these godly habits, build your spiritual disciplines, do your good deeds, have a daily time with scripture, use it to shape your ways of thinking, your habits of thinking, as well as just your knowledge. Build your trust in God deliberately by thinking about his promises and how he has fulfilled them. Obey God's commands in sacrificial service to others. Be thankful, be generous, be hospitable, because this is all part of building you up into the person you need to be and, incidentally, the person who will persevere through difficulties. So spend time in planned, conscious thoughts about God, about his attributes, about his goodness, about how much we see it in the world and practice godly emotions. There is a place for teaching on godly emotions, which exist and are commanded in the Bible as much as godly thoughts and godly actions. Think how you approach stress and difficulty. So rethink your expectations and your reactions. Change how you think about pain. We're in a world that idolises comfort. Um, and that will be affecting you. And that's actually what drove a lot of the shock and trauma of the pandemic. How can this happen in this world? This isn't supposed to happen. Well, it's going to happen. Um, And we're not actually here to be comfortable. Suffering and stress are actually normal in the world and in Christian ministry. We may be grieved by various trials, but the result will be strengthening. And suffering does produce endurance, character and hope. So approach life, expecting stress and expecting to grow through it. That means be aware. Be aware of your emotional responses and what they are saying. 
This is not the same as being self-absorbed. It's about being able to monitor yourself. It is part of watching your life and doctrine closely, of being aware of your emotional responses because they will be telling you something about what you actually believe. And it's very possible to go through life saying you believe God is sovereign and his purposes will be accomplished, but actually deep down what you really believe is I'm on my own and I don't really trust God. So make sure you are changing that deep core belief by what you practice in your thinking. Be aware of how you're reacting to stress so that you do grow, so that you can change that narrative of of how you're understanding it. It's only in being aware of your responses that you can change them to be more godly. Be aware of what your temptations are so you can pray about them and guard against them. Find out where you need to be challenged with scripture. Um, Mindfulness, which people talk about so much, is useful precisely because it does help you be aware of bodily stress, of your feelings and emotions and distracting thoughts. It helps you uh, in your self-control, is is what I found. Mindfulness is a tool to help you have more self-control so that you can actually change your thoughts into a more godly direction. Of course, being aware is only useful if you use that information. If you are aware of your negative thoughts that drive negative emotions and you do something to replace them. So put into place practices that remind you of truth. Write them daily in a journal. Um, I've, I've actually got a book coming out halfway through next year on the Christian practice of journaling, which was inspired by the Puritan practice of writing spiritual diaries. It's a very useful spiritual discipline. Um, use things like that to reframe your experience. Uh, if, if it's your thing, uh, draw pictures or, or frame uh, Bible verses, have them on the wall, or underline your Bible in quiet times, memorise scripture, listen to good Christian songs which put doctrine into your head. Say positive truths out loud. Um, the, the more we learn about the process of learning, it is an embodied experience, and even though it can be weird... Saying something out loud so that your, all your senses, more of your senses are involved is a powerful experience for, for learning something. So whatever does it for you, do that. Actually do something to renew your mind so that you are being transformed. Make it a part of your practice, not just something you hope will happen mystically as you go on through your normal day-to-day. And pray. Um, that's where that passage we started from finishes. Pray at all times in the spirit with prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance because that's what makes perseverance happen. Thank you. Thank you very much, Kirsty. And uh, she's deliberately left some time for questions before we sing and wrap up the session. 
I'm going to use Chair's prerogative to ask the first one, if I may. Mm -hmm. And that is, as I was looking at, at this and then hearing you talk about these, these rules derived from secular psychology, I was thinking of the Rules for Life book that, of Jordan Peterson that maybe many of us have, have read. Do you recommend his, his thought, his work, or not? Oh, I haven't actually read that book. Um, I, I know the one you mean. You know, Jordan Peterson is... Yeah, he says a lot of true things, and so it's, it's useful to read his stuff precisely because he will point out the errors in a lot of the sort of current zeitgeist. Um, and some of what he says in opposition to it will be uh, consistent with the Bible. Some of it won't be. So you just you read it with discernment. But yes, it is good to read that sort of person precisely because he, he's highly intelligent and very thoughtful and will pick up errors that you might not have noticed because we do just absorb what the world says, what we're always hearing, um, you know, all the time when the radio is on in the car, when we glance at the news. Um, uh, yeah, so it is useful reading someone like that just to help you be critical of what everyone else is saying. I mean, it, it did seem to me that there's some overlap between his yeah. stuff. I'd be fascinated to, if you ever get round to reading it and writing a review, I'd love to read that. Um, other questions from the floor then? Jake. Thanks so much, Kirsty. Um, prior to the pandemic, even, mm -hmm. um, burnout seems like a, a, a huge problem within the evangelical church, and, and that's a massive worry for many of us at the earlier stages of our ministry, watching our guides and our mentors crashing and burning, as it were. And I can't help but think that uh, contemporary evangelicalism's suspicion towards given and received liturgy, catechesis, connectedness to the wider churches have lost our sense of being part of that narrative, and, and that, that just seems like a problem. To what extent is that true? Is that um, and and is that part of the solution? What I just would love your thoughts about about where we are as an evangelical church and how we can sort of become more uh, connected and, and find that our, our place in that narrative again. Ah, oh, that's very interesting. I hadn't thought of it exactly in those terms, but I think you're right in that in reaction to some of the 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 dead wood of liturgy and the way it can become an end in itself and in reaction against churches that we see just going off into anything almost um, it has been very much an evangelical characteristic to reinvent everything and say our church services are going to be based on you know just on the bible um, and it's going to be informal because that's welcoming and you know liturgical churches are not welcoming and uh, you know, all sorts of these things which just lead us to be, yeah, more sort of our church is the Lone Ranger. Uh, we're, we're going it alone. And, of course, yes, that does lead you to feel more isolated when we're not isolated. We are actually part of church history and of, of Bible believers who have been there the whole way through. Um, yeah. And I think yeah, being reminded of this historical liturgy in itself can be very encouraging to say, you know, these were people hundreds of years ago in a very different culture from me who believed the same things. 
that itself is very encouraging. And also something that struck me the other day is that as I was writing about, you know, this, this, the effect of saying things out loud, you know, the secular world has uh, this, this belief in affirmations. Um, I was reading one book that says every morning spend 10 minutes saying out loud your aff- affirmations. Well, the thing is, it works. And I think it is part of this somatic learning and of course, in liturgy, you say things out loud altogether. I think there is a, an effect just in doing that, which is, um, I, yeah, I'm not sure that we really understand why, but we are embodied and saying things out loud altogether. Yes, it can lead to purely rote repetition where you, your mouth is saying it, but you're not thinking about it. But if you are thinking about it and if you teach your church how we say things out loud together, it has an effect on us. And it's part of embedding these truths in ourselves so that they're not just abstract beliefs that we have. Um, so, yeah, I think there may well be something what you say. Uh, Eleanor? Just to build on the narrative stuff, um, just thinking that I've, I've practised that and I've done that a few years ago, but I would never ever share that with anyone because it feels I'm incredibly British and I would feel incredibly egotistical. And so putting ourselves in narratives um, is something that just feels so, so dangerous because we have to balance our British self effacingness. Oh my goodness, what kind of ego building are we doing here? Also, we are ministers and the, there is a temptation to say, oh look, we are the heroes of the story. Aren't we amazing? Um, and that could be very dangerous on that end as well. So how do we balance doing that well? How do we balance doing that publicly? How do we balance doing that together in a healthy way and not fall into either of those two kind of ditches um, either side that I think as, as British people and as people in ministry, it just feels like we're walking on a knife edge. Uh, I guess part of... I mean, God is the hero, Uh, That's part of the narrative you're building and you're putting yourself in God's narrative, uh, which is the perspective you want, which is a perspective he tells us to have as we face difficulties, saying... um, And so when I am saying, I am being refined in this fire to be stronger because that is God's plan for all of us, that's not making me the hero. That's saying, this is what God is doing through me. And it's biblical, you know. Um, and uh, so to that extent, overcome your Britishness to be biblical. Um, also, it doesn't have to be done in public. You can do this. It can be just what you tell yourself. And it will spill out in your attitude towards other people. You know, if you're not confident about saying this to other people, at least do it with yourself and make sure you do do it with yourself. Um, but also, it's, I guess it's, it's something which can frame the way you approach conversations. And it's not what you want, necessarily want to say to someone when they're in the difficulty of, of suffering. Um, you, you don't want to say to the grieving person, well, think about how great this is because you're growing stronger. Um, <laughs> No, that is actually an awful thing to say to a grieving person. But in hindsight, you can help people see that. Um, And that will help them for the next time um, because that is there now in their heads about how do you shape uh, understanding what was happening in this this difficulty. So I guess those are the two things to say. Uh, One is uh, 
practice doing it for yourself so that you're not feeling self-conscious about it and just let it gently shape how you speak to other people. Um, yeah, and, and how you tell other people of difficulties you have faced. Then yeah. Ian? Uh, just a question about resources. Mm-hmm. Um, if you wanted to, to learn more about resilience and mental health, what would be some like, reliable podcasts or websites or uh, things to read or listen to? Kirsty's book. Kirstie's book. <laughs> yeah. have, we got, have we got it here? No, but Kirsty's chapter in Reach, Build, Send, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that has some of it. Very good. Um, yeah, I don't really do podcasts. Um, it's something I'm going to have to, to find out more. I've been told that I need to find out um, yeah, more about the Good Christian podcasts. Uh, uh, certainly... You know, there, there's a lot of good Christian stuff, uh, well, older stuff, uh, you know, Spurgeon's stuff on depression and uh, spiritual depression, that, that's really good. Um, uh, Peter Brain's Going the Distance, that's got a lot of good advice in it. And, um, but yeah, there's, there's not... Resilience in itself is... Uh, a sort of a more recent construct, um, I think. But if you look at the older advice um, about persevering in ministry, yeah, you'll find good stuff there. Um, but on the whole, I, I don't think there is enough of it. Um, yeah, I don't think there is enough of this taking uh, the, the practical approach for, it. yes, we know what Scripture says, how do I actually do it? Especially how do I change my emotions so that I will be able to frame experiences more positively and not give in to despair. Um, yeah, I think we need more of it. There may be a good seminar this afternoon as well <laughs> on mental health and ministry. Okay. Uh, and this morning. Oh, this morning, sorry, yes. <laughs> I think, Roz, Roz, are you the um, podcasts editor for Evangelicals I, Now? I, for a little while I used to review podcasts for EN, I don't Right, but... You might have a recommendation in that area, or um, not off the top of my head. I must admit, there was there was a really excellent one I reviewed that I can't remember the name of about death and dying and bereavement, um, but not quite on this sort of issue. I don't think. Any more questions? Probably shouldn't be because we are meant to we're meant to stop. Uh, one of the things that Kirsty mentioned was. Um, the importance of thinking about heaven for half an hour every day, Richard Baxter's recommendation. We can't do that, but we can do it for three minutes as we sing There is a Higher Throne. But actually, just before we do, could I ask, Kirsty, could you pray for our uh, developing perseverance before we sing? And then, Roz, if you give you notices after the song. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, we know you are carrying out your purposes to bring all things under one head, even Christ. And we know that you are sending us out into the harvest field as part of your plans, that you send out your word and it always achieves your purposes. Lord, please give us the attitude that you would have us have as we take our part in that work. Let us rejoice in the privilege it is to work with you as your fellow worker. Let us rejoice in our difficulties, even when we face all types of trial, 
because we know that this develops our faith. And Father, please use us to accomplish your purposes. May we always, daily, be thinking of how you are working through us and rejoice in the outcomes that we know will result in being with your Son in heaven. And we pray this in his precious name. Amen.